Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is The Guardian. So this is the first budget in three budgets that has sort of applied the more conventional wisdom that some version of this reckless spending must stop. Obviously, cost of living is a real pressing thing, as we all know, right? Is anyone going to high-five a government that says, oh, actually, this reckless spending must stop? Probably not. And that's what we've seen in the, in this week's poll. Hello, everybody. I'm Catherine Murphy, Guardian Australia's political editor, and you're on Australian Politics. I'm here for our fortnightly analysis of the latest data from the Guardian Essential Poll, and with me in the conversation today is Peter Lewis, who runs Essential Media. In this conversation, we talk about Labor's first budget, the Albanese government's first budget, which was handed down last week, and uh, the reaction of voters to it. We also talk about one of the topics of the moment, which is energy prices, sustained high power bills for households and businesses. This latest poll gives us a sense of what the community would like done about it. We also have a conversation about Peter Dutton, the Liberal leader, the opposition leader, and how his budget response is sort of tracking the Liberal Party along its political strategy to recover from the election defeat in May of this year. I also just want to be clear that we recorded this conversation ahead of the Reserve Bank's decision on interest rates on Tuesday afternoon. And as always, just a reminder, you can see the slides that we talk about in this conversation if you go to Essential Media's website and you go to essentialreport.com. Much better if you follow the slides while we're having this chat. The way we normally kick these things off is just to do a bit of a sit analysis, isn't it, Catherine, about what the mood is in Canberra, What's the vibe a week after from the budget, or as I like to call it, the budget, because it was a little one? And where do you think um, both the Treasurer and the PM are sitting in terms of, I guess, their, um, their, their, their expectations from a couple of weeks ago and where they've landed now? Yes, let's start with where we're at. So it's obviously been a really busy couple of weeks. There's, uh, there's the budget and uh, there's the beginnings of an argument between the new government and the business community on industrial relations legislation, which kind of kicked up towards the end of budget week and has flown sort of, well, has, has continued into, into this coming week. And yes, it will be a very busy afternoon. As Pete says, because if you're not into the Melbourne Cup, and a lot of people aren't, uh, I think everybody more or less is into what the Reserve Bank is going to do uh, this afternoon in terms of interest rate rises. The tip is uh, that interest rates will go up again, and I think that's the seventh. I think that's the seventh increase. So anyway, where are we at? Well, I think sort of having done lots of budgets, too many to even think about, 
I think uh, the lead-in to the budget was largely well managed by the government. I think what the government wanted the budget to be about was very clear to people, and I think we can see that a little bit in some of the polling numbers that we'll go through uh, in a bit. Uh, people um, people got two messages, I think, if we look at the poll, and I'm not running ahead of us here, but uh, voters certainly got the message that the first Albanese government budget was a down payment on budget repair and certainly got the message that there weren't cash handouts coming for them in terms of cost of living in uh, in the budget documents. But the thing about budgets is you can set up this narrative very neatly and the government did, I think, over about a four-week period. But then the minute, of course, everyone cracks the budget papers, the counter-narrative begins. So it's sort of like I think in the government's mind they wanted the budget to be about first, well, about several things, about election promises, about a a down payment on budget repair because obviously one of the fastest growing measures in the budget papers at at the moment is the interest we're paying on on the borrowing that that is funding various expenditures. So, So it was sort of in that promises budget responsibility kind of frame. Uh, The minute the budget papers open, cost of living was far more central uh, because in the inflation section of the budget papers, there were some forecasts about energy prices, uh, the direction of them this year and next. And even though I think a lot of people are conditioned now to the fact that energy prices are going up and, uh, and there's not a lot of options to do anything about that quickly, uh, I think nonetheless a focal point emerged around those energy forecasts. And then the sort of more radical element of the budget was sort of to the fore. And by radical, I mean over the last several years and some of uh, some folks on with us today will have uh, been with us uh, because these conversations basically started in the pandemic and a lot of people will have been with us throughout that time. So the pandemic has really conditioned all of us, conditioned uh, the country to have different expectations of governments, which which is is sort of really interesting. We now sort of have this expectation that government will be present and empathetic and governments will also react to short-term discomforts and, and pressures. And I think the government, the new government, Anthony Albanese and Jim Chalmers sort of wanted to start to turn that mindset slowly, not, not away from the idea of empathetic government, that's their whole pitch, but uh, from the idea that the answer to every every short-term bit of turbulence is that the government will give people money or give people temporary assistance in order to weather those cost of living pressures. And obviously that, that has to happen because if we do this in perpetuity, it's uh, obviously we get back to the, the debt problem that we've got. Also because the Reserve Bank at the moment is trying to basically fight inflation in the economy by lifting interest rates and will likely again this afternoon. So fiscal and monetary policy do need to align better. The The more kind of stimulus you put in the economy, the worse inflation gets. So there's that whole picture. But I think uh, always sort of when you sit in a room and you war game the reception for the budget, how's it going to go? What things are people going to pick up on? It's one thing to do that in theory, as a new government say, look, 
we've got to turn a bit of a corner here. We've got to redraw expectations a little bit and we're going to do that in our first budget. It's one thing to do that in theory and then it's another thing to experience it mm. when you stand up in budget night and all of a sudden your budget is is sort of not exactly what you thought it was going to be about. Can I ask you about the dynamics in the lockout when the papers are delivered? For those that haven't lived through the seven sorts of hell that is a budget lockup, you basically are locked up with a whole bunch of pretty dense books to, to work your way through. Was there an aha moment where everyone went, oh, look at these energy numbers, or was it something that was seeded in by government and treasury officials, or how did that whole dynamic play out? No, 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 I don't think it was like that, although um, uh, in terms of the I don't know um, what happened down the other end of the corridor, if, if people <laughs> are listening can can envisage the press, the parliamentary press gallery where we are locked in these days. Used it used to be committee rooms in Parliament House. Now we are actually locked in. Oh, in you're our, just in your own office now. Yeah, we're, we're basically imprisoned in the press gallery for a number of hours. Basically, um, we are at the Werribee end, and um, and the treasurer and treasury sort of start the walk through down the other end of the gallery. Uh, so anyway, I don't know what happened down the other end because the thing about lockups is that you're very compressed for time. I mean, you know that no one's hanging out in the corridor working out what the hive mind tells you at the best of times, and you're certainly not doing that on budget day. So I don't know what happened down the end of the corridor uh, in terms of where we sat. I think the the dynamic of the budget coverage was, uh, you know, people looking for the, the new throw forward bit of information because we knew there would be funding of election promises. A lot of people very familiar with Labor's election promises now. Uh, we knew the major forecasts in terms of the inflation number, the unemployment number, the growth number. We knew this in advance and reported these things. So I think the, the question on budget night is always, what does the whole story tell us, but also what is new? And because those energy figures were unknown until budget night, uh, although we had we had some other figures that would lead us to a similar conclusion, I think that's why those figures got a lot of focal point on the night because mm. uh, because it was genuinely new information. This was unknown until we all cracked budget paper number one, inflation section. Mm. Well, I'll jump into the numbers. If the cunning plan was to lull us out of any sense that this was business as usual, you'd have to say it was pretty successful. I'm just checking. Can everyone see that? I think it's looking okay. Um, so let's start with... A long trend line we've had, which is people's expectations of economic conditions in the next 12 months. And this is almost an economic buyer rhythm, really. And um, if you look at the journey from the 61 getting worse to 21 getting better in the budget, I, I think that must have been something we asked just at the beginning of the global financial crisis, 2008, the good times of 09 and then sort of the good times again, 59 better, 16 worse in September 15. And now we're, we're looking at a world, obviously, where we've been through the pandemic, where it, would, it never really got to doom and gloom. It was always like 40-30, um, good, bad. And I don't know if that just changed our expectations or whether the government was doing a good job. But now we're back to 52-24. Catherine, that says to me that if the government is trying to get people to accept a sense of the gravity of the situation we face, then they've been pretty successful in it. 
Yeah, well, I, do, I hope I said a minute ago, it's sort of like I think the lead-in was very successful in terms of that sort of framing of both what the budget would do and the conditions in which the budget was being delivered. And, of course, the Treasurer you know, made much of the fact that uh, in advanced economies there's a very high prospect of a hard landing, which is a bit of jargon, which basically means a recession in uh in the United States and the United Kingdom. And if that were to be the case, then obviously Australia would not be immune from those conditions. So that was very much front and centre in the pre-budget messaging. And if for engaged voters, and a lot of people um, with us today are obviously very engaged in politics, people would know, I'm sure, that the Treasurer went to the G20 finance minister's meeting a week before the budget, basically to get a bit of a readout from global colleagues about the state of the global economy, which for some of us with long memories was a bit reminiscent of what Wayne Swan did at the start of the global financial crisis. Uh, but that was that was a that's obviously a different level of threat, but similar in that the first Labor budget sort of after the 2007 election was initially focused on fighting inflation. That was its sort mm. of central messaging after Wayne Swan took some soundings internationally about the scope of the banking crisis that was going to roll through global financial markets. He came back home from the United States and fundamentally altered the budget. So nobody thought Jim Chalmers was sort of going to just chuck out the budget entirely and start again a la before the GFC. But I think there was, you know, people who were following politics closely would be well aware that uh, the international conditions were relevant and uh, and people who are hyper-aware, hyper-connected would even know that the Treasurer was going to go to the US just before the week, the week before the budget. Yeah, yeah. Um, the other, obviously, we've spoken about the, the one that people didn't see coming, including us, was energy prices, although we were going in the field Tuesday night and we held it back to Wednesday morning. I think we had a feverish exchange, although you were probably a bit cooked by then, but we did ask a couple of questions on energy. The first one was just asking people of all the different issues floating around, which they think are the most important. We we gave them five issues and we said, you can say you're not sure as well and ask them to say the most important and the second most important. Um, just going from the most important to the least, number one, excessive profits by energy companies, efforts to fight climate change in it. Two, the current network becoming old and worn out, coming in at three, Ukraine, which is the default reason at four, and then kind of the, the contra-argument that suggests there's too many restrictions on oil and gas, which really means they won't let us frack, came down the bottom of the line. So a bit of everything, but it's interesting to me that excessive profits by energy companies is seen as the number one. Yeah, and the green schemes. The green schemes are higher in public consciousness at the moment as a cause of these things than, uh, than two of the most acute causes at the moment, which is the war in Ukraine, which has created this global shock in energy markets and also uh, the state of Australia yeah. is generation assets. But anyway, we'll come back to that, I know. Yeah, I reckon we've got a bit of time to spend on energy, Catherine. But this is the one that I reckon would be sending shivers down the spine of the Labor government because 67% of people believe that the government can do something and make a difference on energy prices. Um, that was pretty much equal across the political spectrum. In fact, Labor voters slightly more likely to be expecting um, the government to do something than others. And I guess... Before we go into the other budgets, I might just come up for air for a sec. 
We privatised electricity over the last couple of decades. Um, a Guardian reader has pointed out that Queensland still has elements of its network in public hands. And they've probably got a little bit more control, but I have put a piece up in the Guardian just sort of musing on the parallel universe about how the politics would be playing out now if that whole movement to privatise electricity had either not occurred or not been successful. In in a way, it was the high point probably of the neoliberal agenda. Um, I ended up being drawn into it intimately. This was at a stage of my career where I was working out of um, the trades hall for um, John Robertson, who was head of unions New South Wales at the time before he became Labor opposition leader. For those with long memories, it actually brought down a New South Wales Premier, Morris Yemar, with uh, Robbo's predecessor, Michael Costa, took to an ALP state conference the privatisation and they got rolled. And it was, in a way, in New South Wales, the breaking of the McKell model, which had always been that accommodation that the industrial wing would let the political wing at the end of the day govern. And it broke relationships. It um, was a real frisher in New South Wales politics for a long time. And while the sale was blocked... It also kind of rendered the last term of Labor of those four terms up to 2011 effectively a lame duck, and then the Libs got in promising not to privatise, and then they did, <laughs> um, as you do. Although, to his credit, Baird went to um, an election on the issue, and also, interestingly, the ultimate buyers were industry super funds, which always made me wonder whether the whole thing had been framed up rather than the binary of public ownership, private ownership, but workers' capital investing in the system, which is interesting because I think Chalmers is talking about that a lot now, um, would have been a very different history. So to wrap all that up, I think the government's levers are limited, but when you're looking at what government's trying to do, Dan Andrews effectively setting up public ownership of renewable companies, um, the WA government reserving parts of the gas system and this talk about a new idea of investment, particularly as we, we build community grids as opposed to the old distribution grids, it almost feels like by stealth we're moving back into that virtual reality. So I don't know, Catherine, you were there for that journey as well. I don't know if you carry quite the same scars as me from the actual battle, but would it be a different world with um, a network of energy companies that were publicly owned and existing in the public interest? Well, it's sort of a feature of modern governing uh, that there are very high community expectations about what governments can and should do and there's there are limited levers uh, for governments to actually deliver these things and that's a consequence, as Pete says, of a long history of deregulation and privatisation and other sort of handing back of powers and obviously a lack of centralisation in the economy. So I don't know. Yes, obviously it would be a different world. The government would have more levers than they currently do in order to uh, sort of step in and intervene, but the sort of we'd, the counterfactual is what else would be different? Well, it's it's hard to judge what else would be different. Uh, governments would certainly possess the power, but but what else would be different in the market? And that's the sort of unknown. If we sort of you know just pretended the whole privatisation era never happened, so you know hard to know. Um, uh, but also with great power comes great responsibility uh, for you know, fellow Spider-Man fans out there. So um, 
in the event that governments maintain full ownership of these assets, then obviously the government would be responsible for all, all kinds of things, which uh, these days it's not responsible for. So anyway, it's just it's an interesting thought experiment. Yeah. The, the, the other thing, though, is that just before the sell-off, there was this big investment in gold plating the old yes. network so yeah. private companies could make money out of it. Is that what Bowen's doing again this time with the renewable networks or is there a different model at the end of this? Uh, well, it is a big question. Uh, apart from can it actually be done, apart from can rewiring the nation be rolled out on the government's pre-election timeframes, that's the first question. The second question is how that fits with a more sort of decentralised, distributed energy network as a consequence of Australians being rapid early movers with solar panels, for example. We we have, I believe, one of the, the most distributed energy uh, systems in the world. Uh, so at one level, sort of all of this high-value transmission infrastructure, which is at the heart of the Powering the Nation plan, if people are across that, you sort of look at that and think, oh, really? Except the thing is, uh, if we actually want, you know, to execute the low emissions transformation in the energy market that we need to execute, then that's the means of doing it. The more high voltage transmission infrastructure we, we can put in place, uh, the more renewables can basically grow as a share of generation in, in the grid. So, but it is a conundrum, though, Pete. It's it's absolutely a conundrum whether or not and this is a new form of gold plating. Yeah. The, the final point I want to just mark as well is the extent to which, when power prices do rise, we've actually got two classes of citizens: those that have had the wealth to put solar on their roof, and those that do not have the wealth or are renting. It seems to me it's almost like. We've had a vaccination program where only the rich can be vaccinated. There are big equity issues. I can't believe that we've never spoken about this. I'm, I mean, I'm saying that sort of slightly tongue-in-cheek because I reckon we will have at some point. That, but that is that is a genuine equity dilemma uh, that we have this sort of um, two-speed grid uh, we've got. And the more, uh, the more people who can self-provision, who can basically set up a an electricity generation set up in their own homes, uh, the more the, the grid becomes the sort of province of people on lower incomes and people without uh, access to being able to basically self-provision for, for power. So these are really vexed mm. questions for policymakers. And, of course, making this all even more horrendously complicated is the fact the transition could have been driven by a far more Far, a far more efficient bit of policy than where we've ended up. So where we've ended up is basically with government intervention at the heart of everything and <laughs> and a lack of uniformity between different sections of the economy. Anyway. Just a final, and we have a whole debate as a consequence of privatisation of power as a commodity rather than power as an essential service. And so much of what I see is the government trying to tame effectively an industry which exists to create profits for shareholders. It's got a, le a legal responsibility to maximise profits for shareholders. So there's always going to be that point of tension. Anyway, we can keep that going another time. Look, I, I'll, I'll run through a couple of other budget slides just because they're trend lines so that it, it's interesting in the context of what's come before. Interest down, but that's because it was probably not the, it's not the May thing that everyone gets excited about or 
Although, look at um, October 20 when there was the last time there was a mini budget after um, an event, and that was 63.37. It's 56, um, a lot or a little of attention, 44, not much all. Um, we always ask who's the budget going to be good for? Um, fewer people think it's going to be good for the well off, 42 as opposed to 56 as a high point. Older Australians down 6% from the last Liberal budget in terms of is it going to be good for older Australians, 31.25. I think power prices might have something to do with that. 13% down from 38.25 saying it's going to be good um, for the economy overall. And for people personally, 9% down from 24 to 16. All those markets are saying this is not a budget that anyone is going to have much love for. It's more like a piece of medicine we feel we need to be taking, I suspect, Catherine. And then one more on the budget, likelihood of the federal government delivering specific outcomes. Um, 53% believe it's going to place an unnecessary burden on future generations. 47% say it will create long-term problems that will need to be fixed in the future. Only 40% down... um, 5% 5% from 45, six months ago, reckon it will create jobs. Um, 36, again, down, think it will help Australia recover from the impacts of the pandemic and a big drop also in relieving cost of business pressure. You know, I don't think we're the only poll that has sort of suggested it's been a less than, you know, standing ovation. And I, 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 I suspect, you know, the Treasurer, went into it with open eyes that this was going to be a tough budget, but that's a pretty tough report card, isn't it, Catherine? Well, it is, and it's also, it's sort of interesting and it's hard to sort of disentangle the two impulses. It's sort of like to what extent people's pessimism about their economic conditions then sort of infects their perception of the budget, I think is quite interesting because it's it's pretty obvious, as we said a few minutes ago, that people have got the message that the, the economic outlook here is dicey, uh, courtesy of things that are happening globally, uh, the sustained cost of living problems that people are facing every time they walk into a supermarket, every time their mortgage repayments are due. So it's sort of, yeah, it's sort of interesting, I don't know, to try and pull those things apart, whether whether people are sort of massively down on the budget per se or whether their pessimism about their own situation and about the state of the economy at the moment sort of impacts how they receive budget measures. Mm. But, I mean, but it's very, you know, the thing that put this in my mind, Pete, was that, um, you know, that that measure about whether or not the, the budget would be good for the economy, right, uh, because there's a big drop there. It'd just be interesting to see whether, you know, you could tease out the differences there. But anyway, um, we can't. It's just a thought. Um, it and- also makes you remember how... Frydenberg and Morrison were very good at that first day marketing of the budget, everything from back in black to, you know, there was always something big and chunky, whereas, you know, what Jim's come up with is kind of like doomsday. (laughs) Well, it it sort of was the marketing of doomsday, but I mean, but deliberately so. I mean, and this is, this is what I mean. And uh, that, you know, I said a little while ago that this budget is quite radical in its own way. It's radical in the sense that, it does mark a jump-off point, a transition point from, you know, the, the last budgets that we've had were basically an election budget in May, which sprayed an enormous amount of money at people through fuel tax holidays, uh, a tax break for low and medium income earners, and there was still pandemic assistance still sort of washing mm. through the system, right? So there was an election budget 
And then the ones, uh, you know, the two before that were crisis Keynesian budgets. They were, they reflected the circumstances of the time. Now, this is a new government that's applying Keynesianism in the reverse, right? It's like, it's stopping, it's stopping that trajectory, right? Where like, when the pandemic hit, uh, we needed stimulus. The economy needed stimulus to avoid sort of going into a protracted recession. People needed help because the government deliberately put the economy into hibernation. That was a, that was a decision of government. Therefore, they were morally obliged to assist people, businesses and workers, because the economy had been put, you know, this was like being cryogenically frozen. It was like, you know, who, who was it? Was it Snow White or Sleeping Beauty? I can't remember where all the palace goes to sleep. Anyway. Oh, well, that was Sleeping Beauty, but Snow White was asleep. They, were, they all sleep they at some the point. They're all yeah, yeah, sleeping. Yeah. Anyway, so, right. So, so this is the first budget in three, three budgets uh, that has sort of applied the more conventional wisdom that, uh, you know, this, this <laughs> you know, some version of this reckless spending must stop, right? Mm. Um, and so, look, is anyone going to sort of fate the government in the square for that? Is anyone going to high-five them at the pub, uh, given how tough a lot of people, uh, you know, have it at the moment? Because obviously cost of living is a real pressing thing, as we all know, right? Is anyone going to high-five a government that says, oh, actually this reckless spending must stop? Probably not. And that's what we've seen in the, in this week's poll. Thanks, Catherine. Look, we've got a bunch of questions, but I do have some more slides to share first. So I don't know if that's rude if we don't just get through those. So we did, the other week we did talk about lifting lockdown restrictions just because it was something that we were, we were musing on, weren't we, Catherine, that we were so obsessed with it for so long. Yeah. Do we think government's getting it about right at the moment? Um if there's been a weight, it's towards people saying things are moving too slowly here. Yeah. So yeah. 63% say right speed, 22 too slowly, 15% too quickly. Make anything of any of this? We've got a states breakdown here as well. That it's interesting is. because there, there are obviously, uh, and I want to acknowledge those people, there are a lot of people out there in the community who are, who are concerned obviously about the pandemic still being with us, uh, but none of the supports or restrictions that were in place in in place in earlier stages. But it looks well. The, the behaviour of governments is perfectly comprehensible when we look at the trend uh, mm. in terms of public tolerance for public health measures. Clearly, Australians at this point uh, want to be mentally past the pandemic, and that's the the message governments are getting, and th- that explains a lot of the policy making. Let's go to questions. Ruth Abbey has asked, do we have any evidence about the election's response to repatriation of Australian citizens from Syria? Not yet, but good thought. But I thought I'd throw to you, Catherine, just A, on the issue, but B, on the way that the opposition played this, which I thought was very revealing about the way they're playing most things at the moment. Mm. Well, it's sort of like on the economic front and the post-budget front, I think if you read the polling closely, you can see very clearly what's in Peter Dutton's mind in terms of the politics of all of this. You know, if that has seemed mysterious, I think read the poll closely this fortnight and you will see exactly where the opposition leader is coming from in terms of his rebuttals and critiques. In terms of uh, the Syria question, well, yes, it's sort of like, Peter Dutton is not doing what Anthony Albanese did in the first 12 months of his leadership in particular 
which was sort of avoiding conflict. He avoided conflict really for the first 12 months. The conditions were different. Obviously, we were in the middle of a pandemic, was politically dangerous really to punch on about every little thing. But nonetheless, Anthony Albanese's instinct in that first 12 months in particular was don't pick fights. This is this is a moment we all need to rise to. Don't mm. ambulance chase, basically. Well, Peter Dutton has none of those instincts. Um, and He's got the siren on. <laughs> the siren on. Yep. Um, although it's, that's that's slightly unfair to him because his position on a couple of issues is actually quite nuanced. But in terms of the sort of headline politics, look, I don't know. What, what is it? Is it? Is it a function that Peter Dutton is Peter Dutton and he can't be anything else? Possibly. Anthony Albanese is a sort of more mercurial figure in terms of how he presents. Peter Dutton is a sort of, um, you know, he's a tractor in low gear, isn't he? I mean, uh, so maybe he's playing to his own strengths. Maybe he's looked at himself in the mirror, woke up one day, mm. Peter Dutton, woke up day, one day, looked at himself in the mirror and thought, hmm, can you do light and shade? Hmm, probably not. So better just be me. Possibly that, possibly We've moved on from the pandemic, so the, the the opportunity cost of being negative is not as high as it was. Um, but he's just very, very focused on, you know, on I'll just call it materialism. He's very focused on on cost of living, economy, national security issues that they've always prosecuted. Uh, at this point, he seems to be writing off Teal territory entirely, which is mm. sort of fascinating, and he's coming for Labor. Tony Abbott style, I would say the the sort of concept, the concepts are very similar. So you know, where where this all ends up in three years' time is entirely moot at this point. That's the opening sort of sorties of it. And Syria is just getting back to the question. You know, Syria is just is sort of like very and and Dutton's response to it is entirely on brand, both for the coalition and for him as a national security conservative. That's what he is. So he's definitely playing the I'm a national security conservative card. Uh, I don't think uh, the government would be surprised by that. Um, I don't know to what extent this has really resonated or registered in the community because people are very, very focused on the other form of materialism at the moment, which is uh, can I afford to pay my mortgage? Yeah, national security doesn't seem to be the thing it was, particularly no. after a couple of years of shutting down our borders, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, sort of not as salient as it once was, but uh, nonetheless Peter Dutton is working this on, uh, you know, on high frequency. Yeah. It, it is one of the toughest gigs in the business being a first-term opposition leader. There's, there'd, there'd have to be a study, and I'm just thinking back. So Beasley basically acted like a government in exile and Howard gave him an opening by saying he'd put the GST to the election and he got close. So that that was as close, I think, as a one-term opposition leader's been. Um, Brendan Nelson just flailed around between being a nice guy and trying to land a few punches and never really stood a chance because St Kevin was in ascendance in that first yeah. couple of years. And then... Um, Shorten had the um, austerity budget for purchase. So I guess the question is, if you think about it, Beasley had the GST, Nelson got hit with the GFC and had to um, sit there while Labor was splashing money everywhere, which is, you know, pretty politically popular. 
short and had austerity. What's the purchase Dutton's looking for? It is cost of living. Like you can't blame him for going it because that's all that is in front of you. But history will say that first term opposition leaders, A, don't become prime minister and B, become second term opposition leaders. It's just interesting that sort of call because, I mean, this is a gross generalisation and I'm just saying that up front, this is a gross generalisation. That's what we do. But if, if we sort of look at Dutton's problems at this point as the Liberal leader and a first term opposition leader after a very significant election defeat for his own party, he's sort of got post material Liberal voters rusting off. So he's sort of, he hasn't for whatever reason attempted to communicate with those folks as yet, just has not set up any line of communication there at all. Um, He's very, very focused on the sort of major party, old school, you know, Mm. supermarket trolley, petrol in the car contest that Mm. has been, which is sort of, it's kind of retro in a way and sort of really fascinating. Uh, I mean, I don't know how the story ends. You know, I think it is very useful to people this fortnight to look closely at this polling information. It tells you a lot about where the opposition leader's head's at, about how he thinks he can start to come back in terms of what, you know, what's happened post-election. So yeah, it's no, it's very interesting. Really flowing on from that, Angelica, Hurek has asked you in particular, Catherine, your thoughts on the Laundry Coalition women's stunt and what it did and did it achieve. My good mate Tom Red described the photo as a third-class teal tribute band. <laughs> Look, um, let me let me sort of break this down slightly because and and add one caveat that I was not in the chamber for that question time, and I'm not saying that as some apologia. I'm just saying that factually. In, in order to make a really clinical call on setup versus genuine affront, you actually have to be physically present. You have to actually see what happens in the chamber. And I, like the rest of the country, only saw what the television cutaways told me, which is that Michelle Landry laughed initially and then five minutes later left the chamber in tears, right? I would feel a lot more comfortable about diagnosing that had I been in the room and I wasn't on this occasion. In terms of, though, what are the, you know, Liberal women trying to do, um, I think that's pretty obvious. Uh, And Susan Lee has kind of been sort of at the, the pointy end of that spear. I think they want to that they understand that Labor in the last election cycle did a hell of a lot better than they did at communicating with women on a range of fronts. Um, you know, Scott Morrison was just unbelievably bad at communicating with women and suffered electorally as a consequence. Uh, and I think uh, the sort of women in the coalition are trying to work out, well, how do you start to turn that around? And what they're sort of zeroing in on is sort of trying to muddy up Anthony Albanese, who has modelled a a different style of leadership, a sort of a, a more recessed style of leadership, which cut through, which a number of voters looked at that and thought, oh, that's actually quite interesting, mm. right? So when... Uh, you know, I don't think, and wrote in a column, in fact, last weekend, I don't think the government, like not the substance of the budget, which I thought was actually very well handled, just at the political level, I don't know that the government had a really great week last week. I think in the parliament, some of the exhaustion showed, 
Um, I think they were more inclined, the government, to hector and to belittle than to explain their position, uh, which I never think is a strong suit when you're dealing with really complicated issues. Uh, I think there was quite a bit of wobbling along, you know, the line between delegitimising their opponents and looking looking arrogant, frankly. Yeah, yeah. They wobbled well and truly along that line last week and it was the first time I'd seen it since the election. And so I think uh, Susan Lay perhaps saw an opportunity where uh, Anthony Albanese was less of the thinking, feeling, empathising leader and more cock of the walk, which is oh, what brand. it was last yeah. week, right, in order to uh, make a point. And by that, I'm not, I'm not suggesting anything improper, I'm just saying it's just the cut and thrust of politics, right? They saw weakness. They saw the Prime Minister, you know, sort of fully extended in kind of, you know, I'll, I'll grind you down mode. It was and, pretty good in that Dutton had actually misplaced a key no, Queensland no, no. Oh, situ as well. Yeah, and obviously, you know, it's quite funny that Peter Dutton couldn't pronounce it wasn't Yapoon, it was the other one. Yep, yeah, yeah. Right? So, but there was there was all this kind of overcompensating going on, right? I think Susan Lee looked at him across the chamber, thought, you know, you you look fully extended. Uh, you look as though you, you're trying to get a rise out of us. Well, we'll get a rise out of you. I think that's what happened last yeah, week. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just with that caveat, and I mean that, I was not in the room. I didn't see exactly how it played out. All right. Um, Greg Olson, when will media and economic commentators begin to acknowledge the Reserve Bank of Australia and Treasury already know what they already know, that the Australian government can never run out of money at issues and can always afford to buy whatever it is to sale in the currency at issues? Spending is always a political decision, not a financial one. Up, up, up until a point. Mm. <laughs> up until a point, uh, spending. Yes, of course. It's what the questioner is saying is true. Obviously, governments don't quote unquote run out of money. And yes, of course, governments make political decisions about what expenditures uh, they choose to allocate resources to. Absolutely, no, no question, no argument. You know, debt is not a dirty word. If debt, you know, if the acquisition of debt is sort of in the service of a higher purpose, but at this point in time, you know, I completely understand why uh, the elected government is looking at our trends in terms of how much spending is baked into the budget and uh, how much revenue is coming in the door. Um, I think that's entirely sensible position for a new government to adopt mm. I mean, without sort of going to the ridiculous de- de- deficit emergency hysteria um, that we all remember from the early Abbott opposition later period obviously it's a balance uh but i think i think a whole lot of recurrent borrowing to fund expenditures over the long term is is not a great trend and uh dare we say the words liz truss Mm. basically liz truss uh ended up being the British Prime Minister for 45 days because she promised a whole lot of unfunded expenditures and tax breaks and refused to get her initiatives costed by the independent mechanism for getting them costed. So the market sort of went, eh, no. no, thanks. And, I mean, obviously the British debt situation is different to ours, but anyway, it's a whole other conversation. We're almost done. I just thought I'd throw one more in, which is when we get together again in a fortnight, there will have been the um, midterm elections in the States. Um, 
How closely do you think Australia is watching those results? And do, do you see it being a high consequence election for Australia's economic and geopolitical interests? Well, what it does is hang the lantern over the problem that our most important post-war security partner is not always a partner of choice anymore. Well, the, the sort of combination of economic downturn in that country, rampant polarisation, uh, rampant misinformation, including by one of the parties of government, is basically, I don't mm. want to say destroying democracy in the US because that's an overstatement, but democracy in the United States is imperiled. And I think anybody with even a, a passing interest in politics in Australia understands that and understands that the US is in a very vulnerable position at this point in history. And that is not good for Australia. Given the um, national security things we were discussing about earlier, plus the midterms, maybe that can be a bit of a theme for the next fortnight as we look forward and getting through to the end of the year. That's it for today. Thank you all for listening to our recording of our live show, Paul Position, which is hosted by the progressive think tank, the Australia Institute. This episode was produced by Alison Chan. Molly Glassie is the executive producer, and I'll see you next time. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.